Welcome to Real Crime NYC, where you'll hear real New York City crime stories told by real New York City cops. We'll also discuss some hot topics that are in the news that have a law enforcement angle. I'm Pat. Join Chris, Bill, and I for this episode of Real Crime NYC, where we'll continue our discussion of the murder of four college students in Moscow, Idaho. We have some good news coming down the track. Okay, guys, what do you got? Pat? Friday, great news. Brian Kohlberger, a 28-year-old PhD student from Washington State University, studying in criminology, was arrested in Pennsylvania at 3 a.m. in the morning by a SWAT team. Pennsylvania State Police assisted Idaho State Police and uh, Moscow State Police, in addition to the FBI, in tracking down Brian. The belief is, is that Brian was tracked down through cell phone data, uh, cell phone sites, and also through the vehicle that they were looking for. This is what's being reported is that his DNA has come up in the crime scene and the FBI, who are excellent at intelligence gathering, they must have gotten all of the cell phone data from everybody involved and they were able to get his cell site locations and track them down. And from what we're hearing, he's in the same area as these victims leading up to the murders. Tuesday, he was presented in front of the Monroe County, Pennsylvania courthouse for an extradition hearing and he waived extradition. Yeah. So just imagine the sequence of events here and put yourself in the shoes of that detective or those detectives that are investigating this, the sequence of events. So they're processing all that DNA from the crime scene. They're searching for that white car that they're looking for. At the same time, the telephone analysis is going on for every phone number that pinged off the cell site near the murder. And that forensic person either calls or walks in with a big shitty grin on their face and says, I got a profile, guys. It's not a match to anything we got, but we have a profile. And now the tension is building. The, the excitement is building. But these guys are careful because they've been disappointed before with leads that didn't pan out. So all the parts start coming together. What cars do they drive? Hey, wait, what is his phone number? Check the phone number. Hey, that phone number pinged off the cell site near the murder at the time and date of the murder. Then you want to get eyes on him, right? Why do you want to get eyes on him? Well, number one, we want to see who he is and what he's all about. But number two, we want to get a fresh look as quick as we can at him physically. Does he have any injuries that might have happened during the murder? Does he have scratches on his face? Does he have cuts on his hands? Apparently, this guy was wearing gloves while he was in the supermarket. Maybe that was to cover some injuries on his hands. But imagine the energy building up in these detectives as these pieces are all starting to converge on the one person. It's an exciting time for a detective. I don't know if a civilian could even imagine it, but what an exciting time, energetic. You're on your way to solving this gruesome murder, but you also have to be a little guarded because you've had leads that haven't panned out before. So to put yourself in the shoes of that detective, it's just phenomenal. We've done it many times in the past. The best way to follow this lead, because mind you, it is just a lead. It's not probable cause to arrest you start to dig into each individual. And that's when you start finding the commonalities. You start finding he's driving a white Honda Elantra. He goes to college in Washington State. And now when you start piecing it all together, social media friends, is there any connectivity on the cell phones? The suspense is building. Exactly. You know, that seems to be the steps that were taken. Because if you remember the day that they arrested him, they were releasing the crime scene. And then all of a sudden, they decided to hold it at the prosecutor's request. So it almost seems like that match was a relatively new match within the, the 
prior three, four days uh, leading up to the arrest, and then it unfolded for them rather quickly. There's other building blocks that they can add to that, too. So now you have a name, you have a person, you're taking a look at him. Now let's go and look for video where he lives and see when he left the house that day and when he came back that day and where did he go. You could follow that on video. It's, it's a lot of legwork, but you can do that. Did his car hit off any license plate readers that day? Easy pass, stuff like that. So there's all these little building blocks that you're not even thinking of that can add to your probable cause. Then you do a surveillance on the individual. Let's keep eyes on him. Is he going to spit in the street? Because if he does, the minute he walks away, I'm going to keep an eye on it and I'm going to swab up that spit. And now I have his individual profile. You could do a one-on-one match between him and the unknown profile that you have from the crime scene. And that's when you get your bingo. That's our guy. Investigatively, though, if they had that information before he left Idaho and traveled to Pennsylvania, why not stop him prior to leaving the state? Because once he leaves the state, they have to get an arrest warrant. And then his vehicle's leaving the state. He's traveling over 2,000 miles. Whereas if they would have grabbed him prior to leaving the state, the absolute right doesn't come into play. They could question him. They could put him in the box. And they could pick him up on any unrelated matter and start to question him. Yeah, but you brought up something really good earlier, Bill. This guy is a PhD student in criminology. He might have been very careful not to spit, not to smoke a cigarette, not to leave a glass or a bottle. He might have protected his DNA, number one, and they might not have thought they had the probable cause yet. You know, when he decided to leave. So their only chance was to follow him. But you don't need probable cause to speak to him. And that- this guy's a PhD in criminology. He was going to say the word lawyer the minute they approached him. Do a car stop on him. When he's still in Idaho, do a car stop and take a look at his hands. If his hands are covered with gloves and he's doing something that violates any law, you have a right to question him about the violation. Think about it. They have a prosecutor assigned to this case already. They're not going to do anything that could possibly be questioned in a court of law. So they're not just going to willy-nilly it. They're going to wait. They're going to wait till they have probable cause, and then they're going to bring him in because they know they have one shot. This guy knows how it works. He's going to lawyer up, so they got to take their best shot. Sometimes patience is needed, and sometimes a push is needed. Well, this guy seems like he's a very intelligent person. He's going for his PhD. Sometimes when they think they're that smart, they mess up. If you get a good investigator in front of him, you're locking him in to statements. If you stopped him while he was still in the state and you have a right to question him, you don't have probable cause yet, right? And you're just questioning him. Hey, can we speak to you? He's locking himself into a story that can now be used later on in the investigation or prosecution against him. We're not talking about taking him into custody, talking about questioning him. If he refuses, he refuses. If he lawyers up, he lawyers up. But then the air antennas come up. If they would have known this information prior to him leaving the state, I think it would have been a little bit more beneficial if they would have went at him, questioned him prior to leaving the state. Yeah, you know, it might be a matter of just timing when they got certain information. Could have been just the timing didn't work out. Yeah, I I agree with Bill. You definitely don't want him to leave. You don't want him to attach counsel in Pennsylvania. And then have to extradite him back. It just hurts you as far as getting a confession and a voluntary sample. But it does seem like the information was relatively new. And they jumped up on it. And he happened to be in Pennsylvania. 
They did a clot stop. In reality, he gets stopped in Indiana. If they suspected him, they would have been following him loosely somehow across the country. They wouldn't have just let him flee the state without following him. No, he had a surveillance team on him that whole trip is what's being reported. I'm curious to know if they put a tracking device on his car before or during that trip to make it easier to surveil him. Well, if they build probable cause, why wouldn't you? You're going across country without a GPS. Yeah. Processing that car now that it's in another state, assuming that the FBI is going to assist, getting that vehicle back to Idaho, and Idaho State Police Forensic Lab will process it in a forensic garage, or the FBI could do it in their forensic garage in Quantico. But that car is going to be thoroughly looked at for any blood, hairs, fiber, DNA. And the rule of thumb is if he was in that home, and there was blood in that home, there's going to be a transference of evidence into that vehicle if he got into that vehicle right after that murder. Those hairs, those fibers, that blood, the DNA, there's going to be that transference into that vehicle. Even if he cleaned that vehicle, there's ways that you could find out if there was actually blood on the floor mats, on the seats. Door handles, steering wheel. Look for anything that uh, gives you heavy friction when you touch it, a gear shift, the steering wheel the floor, your feet. Yeah, that car is going to be taken apart and looked at. And again, they still haven't found the murder weapon. I would want to find that because I think that just locks in this prosecution. Yeah, it's it's one more building block for a defense attorney. It's one more little bit of doubt that you're taking out if you get the murder weapon. Familial DNA is a great resource for detectives and law enforcement, but it's getting a lot of pushback from the defense bar from defense attorneys, and they try to paint it at this as this big, you know, ogre of a thing that the government does. And really, a case like this where they use familial DNA that everybody knows about and it brings it to a successful conclusion, it's very helpful because it ed- educates the public about familial DNA. It's a little bit complex, but people can understand it. And it lets them know that It's just a lead that a real live detective has to go and then run down that lead and build probable cause. But to not use it is like, imagine two weeks ago, it was reported in the news that there was a lead, a great lead in this case, and the police didn't run it down. I look at it the same way. It's a lead. Why not run it down? Like, there's nothing intrusive about it. It actually exonerates people too. So it's not just about catching a bad guy. It's about letting someone off the hook who might've been suspected of this. And then you prove it's not. So a high profile case like this kind of helps the cause for the use of familial DNA. And I think it's a good thing. Yeah. There's definitely some legal concerns. Fourth amendment, 14th amendment. The scholars will argue that uh, it doesn't protect your fourth amendment right of unreasonable search and seizure that uh, the 14th amendment protects uh, every person for equal protection under the law. Uh, so there is some argument there, but I'll uh, give a little background on how familiar DNA searching started. When they upload the DNA into uh, the national database, they need a, a full 20 loci position upload to get the uh, federal government to do it. So it'll give you a full match. Uh, the states and the local DNA, the city DNA or, or the local DNA databases don't need that 20 loci positions. They'll use less. And what they've seen over the years, the less loci they've had uh, generated those broader partial matches. And uh, then they realized, hey, if we develop the right software, we could eliminate false positives and we could start nailing down relatives of perpetrators. Uh, And that's when uh, the lineage testing came in. 
uh, and it kind of protected the uh, familiar uh, DNA searches as being more uh, uh, more credible. And that's how it's being introduced state by state now. Not, not every state will do it. Um, New York has started doing it. It's been very successful. Um, but it's got to be protected. It's the, the right people have to be uh, overseeing it and done properly. It's a very successful investigative tool. Yeah, one of the things that makes people uncomfortable with it is um, sometimes it reveals family relationships that they didn't know they had. Sometimes it'll bring up, hey, this guy has a brother. Uh, let's take a look at him. Hey, you go talk to him. He says, I don't have a brother. Well, yeah, you might not have known it, but you do have a brother. Well, conversely, you think you have a brother and he's really not your brother or your son or your father. Exactly. Some very uncomfortable truths are revealed through DNA. But again, people are submitting their DNA to these uh, these private databases. And a lot of times forensic genealogy, I mean, that's where you're getting your bingo from, these uh, databases. And when you join the database, you're basically signing away your right to privacy over it. Yeah, the other thing you got to be concerned with, the sample you're taking, the unknown sample you're taking from the crime scene, you have to 100% ensure that it is the perpetrator's sample. It, it, it's got to be uh, something substantial. It can't just be uh, commingled. My guess here would be blood from like an exit trail, something only a perpetrator could have deposited at that scene. Uh, somehow uh, there's no way possible a victim or a witness uh, could have deposited that DNA sample. Uh, you have to be 100% in fact that it is the, the perpetrator's DNA in order for them to uh, move forward with it. In a perfect world, it would be under the victim's nails. If they got Brian's skin cells or blood under their nails, under multiple victims' nails, you got them. You got them nailed. How do you explain that? Yeah, and it's it's quite possible in this case, uh, like we discussed in episode one, this guy might just be a complete homicidal psycho. Like he may have no prior relationship with any of these people, although there has been some reporting that his cell phone pinged in the same locations, the same cell sites as these people on multiple occasions. That doesn't mean they know him or that they were with him. He could have basically been stalking them. He could truly be a narcissist that's trying to prove himself that he's smarter than a system, that he could get away with murder. We've had that in the past. The perpetrator just picked an elderly couple and he just started stalking them for weeks. He stole the car and then he broke in the house, hid inside and waited for them to go home one day and uh, killed the husband and he stabbed the wife pretty bad, but she wound up surviving. So it is possible. But I do argue that a 27-year-old, even with a PhD in criminology, could successfully commit four murders and get away with it. I think the adrenaline's going, he's nervous, he's rushing, he's going to do something that's going to leave his presence there. I think it's physically impossible for anybody, even a PhD student in criminology, to get away with murder. I feel they're basing that off of his cell phone data. They probably got his text, his cell phone calls, and they're looking at leading up to the murders. Who was he in contact with? And they're probably seeing that there was no one consistently in contact with him leading up to the murders or after the murders. And they're basing off that he did it on his own based on that. Unless they have video of him in that vehicle by himself. And even if they have video of him by himself in a vehicle, who's to say that somebody didn't run off in a separate direction? But I think they're basing it off of his cell phone data. He's a PhD student in criminology. The media is going to eat that up and they're going to run with it. The perfect murder. You're going to see the headlines one day. He thought he was going to get away with the perfect murder. He's got the background. He's got the education. He studied it. He's 27 years old. He doesn't have a career right now. 
He's infatuated with murder. It's a story that the media is going to uh, really blow up. Yeah, but if you think about it, it's two sides of the same coin. He should be educated in in all this criminology stuff, but at the same time, it seems like, and you know, I'll put a disclaimer out there, we're not reading the case file, but it seems like he made a lot of mistakes. He did leave his DNA at the scene. He must have had his phone with him. His phone is hitting cell sites where the victims are and where the murder happened. He used his own car. Most people aren't aware there's a little black box in your car, you know, less sophisticated than you would have in an airplane. But there's there's a recorder in your car that actually records some of the things that goes on with your car. They're going to be pulling that. He probably left some evidence in that car if we're lucky just seems like there's a lot of silly mistakes for a guy who's supposedly so smart. But when you're psycho and you're obsessed, there's no accounting. Sometimes you're looking for the logic to it, and there is no logic to it. He has the education background, the academic background on the subject matter, but he doesn't have the practical, hands-on experience of investigating murders. And he's reading about it. He's speaking to people who are serial murders. He's questioning them on their motives and why they did it, how they did it, at least from what we're reading. But he never actually did it till now, if he is found guilty. And he's going to make mistakes. He thinks he's smarter than everyone. He thinks he could beat the system and he could get away with murder. And, you know, he left DNA behind. He left the cell phone site data behind. You think about the psychological profile here. If indeed this guy is guilty of this crime and you look back at it, He does have some obsessive traits. Friends from high school reported that he was bullied for part of his high school career for the first couple of years. And then he had a dramatic weight loss and he came back and then he became the bully. There are some reports that he might have had a heroin problem, which is kind of obsessive. People reported him being awkward. So he may have a little bit of a psychological grievance kind of profile where he's mad at the world for, you know, how he's been treated. And this is his way to get back. And that's like one of the scariest things you could ever think. If he truly doesn't know these people, this is the worst nightmare. You know, the psycho that nobody knows that just shows up in your house one day and kills you. But what's the motive? Why? I think everybody wants to know why. Psychological. As Pat was saying, a psychological tick in him. Yeah, he's got a grievance and an obsession you know, about how he's been mistreated, how the world has mistreated him. You know, that might be behind his whole area of study. He may have planned this for a long time, and he may have been studying criminology as part of, eventually he knew he was going to do something like this. Where did they go from here? Going forward, there's going to be some hearings about different pieces of evidence. You know, are they admissible? Are they not admissible? Defense attorney is probably going to try to attack them all, and that's what he should do. He has a role to play here, too. Uh, And then ultimately, there'll be a trial to determine his guilt or innocence. But uh, we're just in the beginning stage of this. This could take quite a while to play out, ultimately. So the judge had put a gag order in effect until the verdict is read. And that goes against the, the defense attorneys. It goes against the prosecutors. It goes against law enforcement, police. So that's really going to limit the amount of information getting out to the public. He doesn't want this case playing out in the press. That's why. He doesn't want a circus. His lawyer from Pennsylvania that did the the extradition hearing, he's now no longer his lawyer. He has a lawyer assigned to him from Idaho. You saw at the murder location, there were defense investigators that were hired by the defense attorneys that were there. Yeah, people want to see the science. They want to see the person. 
They want to see the self sites. They want to see all of that stuff. This guy could probably be convicted without any shadow of a doubt, but he is entitled to a defense attorney. And I think they reported today that it was his defense attorney that was at the, the crime scene with a private investigator that had been hired by the defense today. So looks like he already has a defense team that they're putting together. But talk about a case that's going to be followed minutely. People are going to be sitting on the edge of their seat. These detectives and the police officers and the agents did a fantastic job here. I'm confident that they have a lock-solid, airtight case, including science, forensics, good old-fashioned detective work. I'm confident that this is our guy, but I could be wrong. And that's that. Thanks for joining us for this hot topic on Real Crime NYC. I'm Pat. I'm Chris. And I'm Bill. We'll see you when we see you.